Thank you. <clears throat> it is really, really good to be here this morning with you. Uh, in fact, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time now. This is my first time here, and um, I just got to say, this is, this is really, really cool. I got here a little early just to kind of see all this um, happen, and man, it's, it's really, really exciting to be here. Um, I know I, I look around the, the crowd this morning, and I just see a lot of faces that I do know and a, a lot of faces that are dear friends to Michelle and I, and, and then faces that I don't know, and that's really exciting for me as well. So for those of you who don't know me, like Dennis said, I'm the student ministries pastor at Redemption Hill, and, um, and really what that means for you is that um, I'm the guy that kind of pulls the strings behind the scenes, but anything that happens that's really good in student ministries is is really a result of Evan and the phenomenal student ministries team that, that he has here. So it's such a, it's such a privilege to work with them. And um, I do, like I mentioned, I have um, a beautiful wife, Michelle. She's somewhere around here right over there, I think. And, um, and we have two little ones. We have two little girls. One, uh, our oldest, Peyton, she'll be three on Thursday. And, um, and she is a tornado with legs. And... Um, <laughs> And so if you see a three-year-old hanging from the rafters, guaranteed it's mine. Um, and God has quite a sense of humor to give parents who think that they might have things figured out before they have children a child like that. Um, and, uh, and then our other one, <clears throat> Nora, she is 11 months, and, um, and she is about as different from Peyton as you can get. So uh, it's quite a journey. But we're so blessed to be here with you this morning. Um, I've already just felt so welcomed and I, I just want to commend you for that. I think this is, uh, this is a place where people can come and feel loved and feel welcomed and feel comfortable. And I, you don't get that everywhere. And I think that's, I think that's incredible. Um, so I'm going to figure this out here. Nope, I'm not. All right. <laughs> this is for a short person. Um, <clears throat> thank you. He used to work at Sony, so he's smart. All right. So, uh, I know that you guys have been going through the first couple chapters of Luke, and, uh, and so when Dennis asked me to teach, I was really excited, um, and so we're going we're gonna to continue that today. So if you want to take your Bibles out and turn to Luke chapter 2, uh, we'll, be, we'll start in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, and um, I'll go ahead and read that for you. It says, in those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and, lied, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Just pray with me. Lord, we, um, we come to you this morning expectantly. Um, we, we ask, Father, that, um, that you would open your word, that you would um, illuminate your word uh, as, we, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to draw truth and meaning for our lives today. We thank you that, um, that your word is timeless and that um, we can go to this text, Lord, and we can base our lives and the foundation of our lives on it. So we ask that you, um, Spirit, would be our guide this morning. I pray that the words that come from my mouth would be yours and not mine, um, and that you would do a mighty work in us today, Father. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. I love this time of year. Um, I love, I think, in, in part because of the nostalgia that comes uh, with the holiday season. If you're anything like me, um, when you get together with friends and family, you start to tell stories. And um, if you've been separated for a while, you tell stories to kind of connect back with one another. And then eventually the stories get back to the good old stories like, remember the time when that guy did that thing? And you laugh and and, um, and it's just this great time. And I, um, I, love, I love that and I love stories because uh, they make me think back about, especially in this time of year, my childhood. And I think back fondly on, on my childhood. God, um, God graciously allowed for me to be born into a family where my parents loved the Lord. And, um, and I look back and I see the things that they instilled in me. And there's several things that really r- rise to the surface. But one of the things that I've been thinking about a fair amount recently is just the way that my parents modeled how to truly love people. Um, and not from a distance, but to get involved in their lives on a level um, that was messy, that was hard. And uh, that seemed normal for me as a young boy, but now as I, as I reflect back on it, it's probably anything but normal. I remember a time my dad had, um, and still has, a lot of, he's really handy, so every house that we lived in, uh, he would take on these gigantic construction projects. He'd add on to the house, and, um, and so he was a school teacher, and he would use his summers to do that. So one summer, um, we were young, and, um, and my dad wanted to build a deck in the back, I think. And, um, and so what he would do when we were young, when we got older, we'd, he used us as slaves, but when we were young, um, he couldn't do that as much. And so one thing that he would do was that there's a, he would connect with, with other men who maybe were down on their luck or out of a job or just um, needed some help. And my dad would connect with them and say, hey, I'll give you a job. Why don't you come over to my house and, and we'll work. And, um, and he wouldn't just give them a task and, and go do something else. He would work alongside them. And as a young boy, I remember thinking, oh, my dad really cares about this guy that, that we don't even really know. And he'd bring them into our family and we'd have uh, meals with them. My mom would cook dinner oftentimes for them. And, 
Um, there's one guy in particular who had just, um, he had just gotten out of jail, and he had a family, and he had little kids, and he had no way to provide for them. And my dad connected with him, and, and so he brought him over to the house, and they began to build a relationship with one another, and we'd work all day. And then after um, we'd work, we'd pile into my dad's pickup, and we'd drive him across town to this little motel that his family was staying in. And um, and my dad would walk in, and we'd, we'd see the family, and he'd talk to them and see how they were doing and see if there was something he could do to help them. And, um, and this, this really made an impact on me, particularly as I got older, and I started to think, wow, um, that's, that's something that's really incredible. When my parents talked about um, this guy in particular, they didn't say that guy that they're helping. They said, my friend. It wasn't those people. It was our people. And now, as a, now that as an adult, as I reflect back on that, I, I understand the, the huge emotional and physical and financial price that you pay when you, when you invest in someone's life to that degree. They could have held them at arm's distance and given them money or given them a job, but they invested in, in, in these people's lives to a degree that um, they made a difference, to the degree that these people knew that my parents loved them. Why did they do that? Why did they, why did they pay the price? Why were they okay paying the price? They were okay paying that price because it was what Jesus did for them. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus looks at us and he says, what I am, I am for your sakes. What I do, I do for you. I am yours if you will be mine. We want to, as Christians, get past this thinking, thinking those people and think my people and our people. We want to be emotionally vulnerable. We want to, we want to make dinner for guys who have just gotten out of jail and their families and their children and the, our neighbors down the street and, and the college student who is lost and the, and the businessman who doesn't know he's lost. And we want to pay that price because... That's what Jesus did for us. That's Christianity. That's how Christ loves us. Because unto us was born that day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, Luke tells us the story of Jesus' birth in three scenes. Uh, first, we see it in, in verse 1 through 7. We see the setting of his birth. Secondly, in verses 8 through 14, we see the meaning of his birth. And then thirdly, in verses 15 to 20, we see um, two different responses to his birth. And so first, the, the setting of his birth. I'll read for you just a couple verses here. First two verses in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. I have to say I'm very proud of myself for being able to say that name. That is not easy. Um, but it's obvious in, in even these first two verses that Luke is presenting the birth of Jesus not as legend, but as, as deeply embedded into the solid history of this world that we live in. Throughout the Bible, from cover to cover, we see God um, intimately involved in, in this world, in the way that things are, are moving. The first four words of the Bible are not once upon a time, but in the beginning God. In the beginning of what? This world. God cares deeply about this world that we live in. This world matters to God. It's why Luke starts his account in Rome, where he says, Caesar Augustus ordered a census of the entire empire, one powerful man disrupting the lives of millions and millions of little people. But isn't that kind of the world that we live in? I mean, if I'd have been Joseph, I'd have been like, 
you've got to be kidding me. I've got deadlines at work. Mary is really pregnant. And this you know, moron in Rome has his foot on my neck. I cannot believe this. could not be worse timing. But that's the world that, that we live in. And that's the world that Jesus was born into, a world where our lives are disrupted by powerful people who do whatever they want and everyone else pays the price. But God is very, very shrewd. 700 years before this, God predicted through the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So how did God get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth down to Bethlehem? A decree went out from God that a decree would go out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world would be rearranged for a little while. The world we live in is a world where God is moving his plan forward through, power, through powerful people who, who, who don't care or even pretend to care or cooperate with God. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't understand about that concept. But, um, but doesn't it make a difference to see history um, as the stage that God is moving his plan and his story forward, whether or not people intend to cooperate. God is wise, but he's also humble. Jesus could have been born in Rome. He could have been born in, in any classy place in the world if God cared about those things, but he doesn't. Christ was born in a dumpy village in a little town that few people in the world knew about. And there wasn't even room for Mary and Joseph in, in the inn. No privacy, no comfort. The fact that Mary had to put Jesus down for a nap in a feeding trough means that, that, that they had none of that. Tradition says that, um, Christian tradition says that, that it was in a cave, and it, it probably wasn't. I don't want to ruin your nativity scenes. Don't go throw those away. But probably in a lower room of a house somewhere. But either way, either way you slice the cake, everything in this story points to obscurity and poverty and hardship. We can only imagine what Mary had to go through um, in, in delivering this child. And, and Joseph, as he walked and endured these things with her, he loved her so much. And that's the world that we live in. Um, if you've seen the film Crimes and Misdemeanors, uh, it's a Woody Allen film, and I think his films are really interesting. There's a scene in this particular film where um, he, there's a childhood memory. He goes back to, to of his aunt kind of ridiculing his uncle. Um, so his aunt is kind of uh, atheist, Marxist, and she's ridiculing his uncle for believing in God in, in kind of this, um, this awful world, this brutal world. And so his uncle answers, if I have to choose between truth and God, I'll choose God every time. And that's a very modern way of thinking. That's not the way that Scripture thinks. That way of thinking allows for two kinds of truth, that there's hard truth in the facts that leave us very cold, and then there's soft truth in religion that is some sort of consolation prize. But we, have to, we kind of have to invent it in our own minds. It's wishful thinking. It makes God this kind of cute sentimental thought that just helps us. The, the reality is that the gospel never calls us to make a leap of faith because it was the Son of God who took the leap of faith down to be born in a smelly stall in a third world village. If you want God, you do not have to stoop to wishful thinking. The gospel is reality-based because our lives are reality-based. And that's what we see in the setting of the birth of Jesus Christ. And number two, we look at the meaning of his birth in verses 8 through 14. In verse 11, 
Um, we see, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this really is the heart of Christmas, that we have a Savior and a Christ and a Lord. But Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Christ and Jesus is Lord. If we're honest with ourselves, that can easily become cliche if we're honest with ourselves. We want reality with God, and so we have to press past these cliches. These words in our culture, they've lost their meaning. They have, they have no weight. They have no impact. And the words of the gospel need to be re-engaged uh, and, and shown to be as true and as powerful as, in fact, they are. And I think if we were to fan out from here after the service around La Habra and, and we were to ask people and engage people, even with these three words, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord, I, I would imagine that there would be very few people here who would just be flat out rejected, that someone wouldn't want to talk to you based on the content of the questions you're asking. Um, we're really okay with God talk around here, and, and we're really okay even with Jesus talk. Um, and there's places that, that that's not okay, but around here, we're okay with these things. And I think, though, honestly, part of the reason for that is because we, we have lost um, we've lost the weight, like these words have lost their meaning, they've, they've lost their power, they don't land on us anymore. What does it mean that Jesus is my only Savior and my only Christ and my only Lord? These words have to have weight for me. How is that good news for me and for the rest of the world? And we, don't, we don't think about these things because they have kind of become cliche. And I, I want to just look at these three words quickly here. First, Savior. In the first century, this, this term Savior, it, was, it, was, it did not have the religious overturn, overtones that, that it does for us today. It was a common word used for politicians and for heroic public figures and for people who benefited society. It was, um, it was given to the god Asclepius, who is the god of healing, to, given to Zeus, who provided safe voyage across the sea and so on and so forth. Savior meant someone who preserves life, someone who holds society together, who, who, pre who prevents disaster. And that's why the angels chose that word. It's a perfect word because Jesus is the only hero that this world will ever experience. Secondly, Christ, that is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. He came to fulfill all the promises of Scripture that we failed to fulfill ourselves. The title Christ or Messiah means anointed one. Jesus, the man, has, has the greatest anointing of the Holy Spirit um, in all of human history. He has the Spirit without limit, which means that he is fully qualified to be the perfect second Adam, to, to relaunch a Spirit-filled new human race. So Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, and then finally, Jesus is Lord. And over 40 times in the book of Acts, the early Christians refer to Jesus as Lord. They, they didn't know how else to refer to him. In fact, one of the earliest Christian confessions was Jesus is Lord. Scripture says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The early Christians saw Jesus as their Lord leading them, providing for them, protecting them, correcting them, defending them, present with them in power and authority no matter what they were facing. The Bible calls Jesus the Lord of Lords. There's no other. There's, there's none higher. The Bible says that, that, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. But that means that then he's a threat. 
He's a threat. He's a threat to, to every false Lord that we have created in our own hearts, in our own minds, these, these idols in our lives that we give way too much attention to and way, way too much focus on. They accuse us. They find fault with us. They bully us. They drag us down. They demean us. They humiliate us, and they never forgive us. But how did our true Lord come to us? Our true Lord, the one true Lord, says, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. He was easy to find, and he wasn't inside our heads or just in between our ears. He was real. He was reality. He is the truest sense of reality. And only God would humble himself that low. Only God would do it that way. Zero grandiosity. He has, he has no stomach for that. He isn't like that. Jesus is our only Savior. He's our only Christ and our, and our only Lord. But I wonder if part of the reason that this has become cliche for us is because um, maybe we don't think about what, is that, what does that mean for me? How does that help me? How does that benefit me? What, what is, what, how does that change my reality? I wanna, we need to press further into these, into these words and what they, what they mean for us. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Jerem Bars. He's a professor at a seminary, and he refers to um, what he calls seven alienations, um, and these are things that, that we all experience, you and I both experience, as broken and fallen people in a broken world. Um, this is, they are simply inescapable. It's what we're born into and what we're born as. And they are seven ways to explain the anguish and the pain and the sorrow in our lives and living, living in this world. And all of us experience all seven of these. And I, I think they're fascinating. I wanted to share them with you. So... Um, Number one, the first alienation is that the creation that we live in is set against itself. Theologians call this the curse, that we live in a predatory creation. And we, and we see this, that, um, that we see the effects of the curse in our lives. Um, number two, our own loss of dominion over creation or our own loss of control over creation. It's not just um, danger like from animals and that kind of thing, but think about failure at work. Our, our life is not kind of one, um, I don't know, upward trajectory of success. We're not even at the top of the own, our own reality that we live in, and we see this. It's, that's the reality, is that, that our lives aren't like that. We all see that. N- number three, our very selves split apart when, when body and soul divide at death, which is often preceded by pain and struggle and sorrow and discomfort. Death and suffering are humiliating. Don't let anyone tell you that death is your friend and that it's just some part of the cycle of life. Death is our enemy. Death and suffering are humiliating and wrong, and we see this and we know this, and, and ultimately we can't do anything about it. That, and we try to. We try to eat well and we try to exercise. We spend, as a culture, millions and maybe billions of dollars to try to stave off the effects of aging, but the, the reality is, the statistic is, one out of one dies. Number four, we alienate one another. Isn't that true? We alienate one another. We drive one another away, even the people that you love the most in your life. The greatest of human relationships, a marriage relationship, even in the greatest relationship, it's not perfect. We fail one another. We don't love one another the way that we ought to because we love ourselves more. We alienate one another. The fifth, the fifth one, we don't, we don't even like ourselves. In those moments of, of kind of quiet self-awareness where you're alone with your thoughts and, when, and you're alone with your own heart, 
we don't like what we see within us. We see things within us that, that we know are wrong and that we know need fixing, and it saddens us, and, and we're embarrassed, and we're uncomfortable with this, and we, we ought to be. Number six, we reject God. We keep our distance. We, we want enough of God to bless us, but not so much that He takes over our lives. Because we don't really want Him, but we want His, his sprinkling of blessing so that then we can move on and, and kind of do what we want to do. And that insults God. And finally, God is rightly offended at how we treat Him and one another. How could God be true to himself and, and be okay with the way that we are and the way that we are to one another? God is right to turn his face away from us. And so these seven alienations are why life is bitter and difficult and disappointing and painful. But here's my point. Jesus came into the world as Savior, Christ, and Lord on all seven levels to bring back and heal all seven levels of alienation. He is not small. He is as massive as the full extent of our real guilt and deep, deep pain that we experience in this life. We cannot escape the grip of those seven alienations. There's nothing that we can do about that. We can't get away from those unless, unless there is someone else who is stronger, someone that is better than we are. And who else is that but Jesus Christ? He lived the perfect life that we've never lived, and he died the death that we deserve to die. He died underneath the wrath of God. But then he rose up from it all, and he will come again, and he will, he will eradicate all evil and pain and suffering and death, and that he will, he, he will bring back to himself those who have, have accepted him as Savior and Christ and as Lord. We need to magnify our thoughts of Jesus until we see him covering all of that. And when we get to that point, then we start to get a glimpse of how magnificent our Savior, Jesus Christ, is. Savior, Christ, and Lord on, on the level of all the things in our life that tear us apart. He is the complete friend for the trapped, for the broken, for the abused, for the addicted, for the abuser, for the alone, for the misunderstood, for the lonely, for the angry. He's the complete friend for you, and he's the complete friend for me and for us. Finally, the response to his birth. <clears throat> In verses 15 to 20, we see two responses to the birth of Jesus. On the one hand, we see the shepherds, and on the other hand, we see Mary. Two very different responses. Um, here's one response. The, the shepherds, to their credit, hurried to Bethlehem. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, they say. And um, in their way, they believed. And the shepherds found that God, what God had told them was true. So they returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God. And then verse 18 pulls more people in. It says, and all who heard it wondered or marveled at what the shepherds told them. And that's a good response as far as it goes. But Here's, here's what I think is really interesting. Here's what has kind of puzzled me. Um, have you ever noticed that after the Lord's birth, with the angels and the glory of the Lord, it says, um, it says that the heavenly host appeared. That word host is a military term. It means army. So the sky split open and the army of heaven poured out to bring peace, not war. And the, these shepherds, it says they're terrified. Translation 
they're going, oh, this is what it means to die. They are, they are terrified in the biggest sense of the word. And, and so up until this point in history, this is the most amazing, the, most, the greatest event in history up until this point. And then 30 years later, when Jesus starts his public ministry, there's no one going, I've been waiting for you. I remember when I was a teenager, I heard that the Messiah had come. I heard that, that he had been born in Bethlehem. I've been waiting for you. That's not what we see. We see they don't know who he is. They're wondering who he is. And what happened? I think it's one thing to get caught up in, in a dramatic event with chills going down our spines, but it's a whole other thing to take that and, and to make it part of our reality, to let it sink deeply into our hearts, to redefine our lives and the hope that we live by. The shepherds were right to glorify God and to praise him, but a few days later they go back to work and, they, and their memory begins to fade. And the magic in the air and the sense of something spectacular kind of gives way. It's like, it's like Christmas. It's like the lights and the sounds and the excitement and the family and all the joy that surrounds Christmas gives away to, the, to drab January eventually. And every, everyday life can become so crushing, can't it? And we, we get excited about God and then one ordinary day stacks upon another ordinary day and upon another ordinary day, and upon another, and, and, we, and we forget about God, or we forget to be excited about God. And plus, on top of that, we sin, and we struggle, and we begin to think, was it really as true as I thought it was? Was it real? Did I really experience that? We wonder how much of it was real. And, and this is the way it looks. It doesn't mean that we stop going to church. It doesn't mean that we stop um, you know, participating in a life group or even a ministry that we're involved in. But what it probably means is we start to stop growing. But there's another way that we can respond. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart in verse 19. That's a different response. You see the word but there. It means that there's a contrast of sorts. It says, that, it says but Mary treasured. This idea of treasuring means to protect to defend. Mary defended within her thought world, her, her thoughts and, and the truth about Jesus. She prized it. She held on to it. She didn't let the, the struggles of, of daily life beat it out of her. She said to herself, I must never forget what God has done. I must never forget what God has done. What else is there for me in life? And I wonder if any of us have had maybe an experience similar to this. I think of when I was in high school, and one of the things that I loved to do with my dad and my brothers, we used to go backpacking all the time. And um, so the summer between my senior year in high school and my freshman year in college, we went on this really epic backpacking trip. Um, it was almost 200 miles. It was like two weeks. And we ended up, it culminated at the base of Mount Whitney, and we climbed Mount Whitney the last day, and, um, and it was just this amazing experience. So we, we kind of hiked to the back of Mount Whitney, this big horseshoe. And um, what you do is you spend the night there, and then you wake up really early in the next morning, and you've got you to get up and back down because it's like 18 miles, and you're really tired by that point. Um, and so we, we get up really early in the morning, and we're, we hike up to the top, and, um, and the sun is coming up, and even me as a high school guy at that, that moment, I'm standing on the summit of the tallest peak in California, and I'm looking around, and I'm going, okay, city boy, 
you got to remember this. And I can see that like a picture in my eyes and in my mind, and it's not going to leave. And I, and I think maybe to a very small extent, this is kind of what Mary is talking about, that we treasure these things, that we never forget what God has done. But Luke tells us more. Mary also pondered these things in her heart. That's fascinating to me because what it means is that not even Mary understood Jesus fully. Not even the mother of the Savior understood Jesus fully. She had to think and she had to rethink, and she had to rethink and think some more. The word pondering, we'd probably translate it as like connecting the dots. Uh, so she started to connect the dots about Jesus. She, she took the dot about what she had read in Scripture and what God had, had re- revealed to her and all the things that were happening to her, and she began to connect the dots. She began to put together a growing understanding of Jesus and who he was. She meditated, she pondered, she thought about him. Maybe she journaled, I don't know. And she grew and she changed while other people kind of lost interest. You and I, we don't need an angel. That would be cool. I've often wanted to see an angel. I don't think I've seen one. But we don't need one. Angels come and go. Even in this text, angels are here and then, and then they're gone. Spectacular experiences come and go. Um, but we all, what we all need is for something to breathe life into us every day. In, in the crushing days, in the hard days, in the painful days. What is that? It's that good news of great joy, that Jesus really is our true Savior, our true Christ, and our true Lord. And we can treasure these things and we can ponder these things because that has power. That has power to take you through uh, a, a painful season in life. That has power to give you hope when life seems hopeless. That has power to give you joy when your circumstances are hard. That has power to oxygenate, oxygenate you every day. It has power for stay-at-home moms to, to be able to press through the, the difficulty of raising children. It has power for businessmen to be able to be integrous in, in really hard situations. It has power that Jesus is the real Savior, the real Christ, and the real Lord, and that's what we need. In a minute, um, the worship team is going to come back, um, back up and is going to lead us in a time of response. And I want to um, frame some thoughts for us to maybe, maybe just ponder um, as we respond in worship. Uh, there may be some here this morning um, who maybe don't buy what we're talking about, that Jesus is Savior, Christ, and, and Lord. And, and, and maybe you don't believe that. And I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. We love you, and, and we're, we're pleased to have you here. But maybe if that's you this morning, I, I just I want to encourage you that maybe God has something for you. I'm reminded of the words of, of Bob Dylan. Um, you can tell me Robert has rubbed off on me in uh, maybe not so good ways. But um, the words of Bob Dylan, he, he talks about this. He says, surrender your crown on this blood-stained ground. What does that mean? It means take off your mask. It means maybe today you're thinking that God is holding out on you, and the reality is is that that you've been holding out on God. Um, If you'll be honest and real with Him about who you really are, including those parts that that are hard, that are painful, that are embarrassing, that you don't want anyone else to know, He will pour out His grace and mercy on you that has been purchased through Christ. That's a promise. If you will be real with him, you will be amazed at how real he will be with you. Uh, for those of you this morning who are, who are followers of Christ, maybe what God has for us this morning is this, that um, around church, we talk about 
lots of really important things and really good things, and, and these are helpful things to talk about. We talk about being a people on mission, and that's really exciting, and it's, and it's kind of the heart of why you guys are here, is that we want to be a people on mission. We talk about, you know, least reached, but we talk about, um, we talk about our neighbors and our, and our um, business partners and um, people in our neighborhood. We talk about um, the, the people that we can reach with the news of Christ, family members who don't yet know the love of Christ. We talk about campus planting and raising up leaders and, and all these things. All of that is mission, and all of that is, is really, really good. We also talk a lot about community, uh, you know, walking in the light, being honest and open with one another, that we, we don't hear, we don't save face. We're not trying to make an impression. We let that go. We are who we are with one another, and I, I'm not here to fix you, and you're not here to fix me. That's not how we roll. And that's all community, and that is all so important. But, but what I would say, um, what I would say is that before any of those things, Jesus is Savior and Christ and Lord. And I think that's, that's, that's what we need to remember, that before those things, He alone is Savior, He alone is Christ, and He alone is Lord, and that He, he comes before those things. And if we, can, if we can ponder and do those things together, and we can, we can think together and worship together and cherish together the fact that that is who Jesus is, and that's the first thing that we do together as a family, there is going to be so much gas in the tank this next year for, for us to be able to do everything that God calls this church to do. There's going to be so much gas in the tank to, to reach this area for Jesus Christ. There's going to be so much gas in the tank to, to see people come to faith in, in amazing ways, to do everything that God has called us to do. Jesus first at Redemption Hill Church. That's, that's what we want to be about. And then we're reminded about that in this passage. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are Savior, Christ, and Lord. And we are so grateful for that. May we, may we see you afresh, new. May we see you better over this Christmas season. I pray that these words that are so powerful, that are so weighty, that they would land on us and that they would change us. They would, they would change our reality uh, the way that we live, the way that we love one another. Uh, so God, I ask that you would be working in our lives. We thank you for this time. We, and we, as we enter into a time of worship, Lord, I pray that you would be working, um, that you would be working in, in really powerful and mighty ways. We pray these things in your name. Amen.